Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, there are four main numbers scientists use to measure drought, and right now they're all headed in the wrong direction. I mean, you cannot look at these and not be concerned. More on what the future may bring for the Colorado River Basin. And we explore some of the barriers keeping many Hispanic men from going on to higher education and what's being done to address the gaps. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado has one of the most highly educated populations with a 61% post-high school attainment rate. State officials have set a goal for themselves to get that number up to 66%. And though the majority of students who graduate from Colorado high schools attend college, about 56%, that number looks a lot different for one group in particular, Hispanic men. Fewer than half go to college, a rate that's less than that of black men and Hispanic women. And of the Hispanic men who attend one of Colorado's public four-year universities, just 41% make it to the finish line. Despite the state's highly educated population overall, only a quarter of Hispanic Coloradans have a college credential. These data points come together in a reporting series by Chalkbeat Colorado reporter Jason Gonzalez, who explored the impacts these disparities can have on students, their families, and the state as a whole. Jason's with us now to talk about his reporting for this series. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me back. Now, we just gave out a lot of data there. Can you help us put those numbers into context? What are some of the factors that contribute to these disparities? Yeah, there are definitely plenty that um, contributes into what's going on here. And it's, it really is a very nuanced issue. This is not just like one thing that is causing all of these um, uh, challenges for Hispanic men. I mean, there are, um, you know, there's a college preparedness piece of, of how prepared are you leaving high school. There's um, family expectations of, you know, do you have to work if you do go to college and do you have to support um, family members and family household as you go to college, which can make getting there very difficult. Um, There's a mentorship aspect here of not having enough mentors who are Hispanic men who can really guide students through a very complicated process. There's, um, uh, you know, just a preparedness for all of the paperwork um, especially when many students are first generation, um, they are they're not familiar with things like the FAFSA form, which is you know federal aid um, and can help you get scholarships, which makes um, going to college so much uh, less expensive overall. Um, I'm missing so many other things, uh, but they're they're just a, a mounting amount of, of challenges for this group of students that makes it really hard for them to see themselves as um, college students. And, and I will say that, that uh, one thing I've also heard is that students, uh, especially Hispanic men, aren't pushed into college as much as 
Hispanic women or our other groups. Um, and part of that is because there is this um, almost uh, expectation or, or just, um, you know, this, this thought out there that Hispanic men aren't interested in um, furthering their education. And in, in reality, many of them do have these college dreams. They just don't know how to accomplish them or have never uh, had someone who's talked to them in depth about um, what their college future looks like. In one of your stories, you write that these higher education gaps have implications for the state's prosperity. Uh, tell us more about what you meant by that. Yeah, so th this is um, a whole community that is not served correctly. There's, uh, it, from, from all the people that I've talked to, they just aren't getting the attention um, that they need to access uh, economic prosperity in the state. When Colorado set that goal of 66% of residents equipped with a college degree or certificate, um, that was because there are, you know, more than 70% of jobs needing um, some type of college degree or certificate, some sort of training beyond high school. And if you don't get this group, this community equipped with um, some training that call it post high school, uh, then, you know, they're not able to actually access the economic reality of the state. And um, it, it really is, for, for many of the people that I talked to, a scary thought to realize that this, this group is getting left behind as a whole. And it's, um, I think, you know, you, you, I always liken it to um, when I talk to people of, of walking with both legs, you know, Hispanic women are um, in, in some sense being targeted at a higher, higher rate, but you can't you know, you don't, can't walk with one leg, you can't run with one leg, you, you need both um, legs there. And, and Hispanic men are the other part of, of that um, pillar to make sure that it's strong uh, as a community. Right. Well, one piece in this series tells the stories of two Hispanic men who are brothers. Tell us about them and what you took away from meeting them and hearing their stories. Yeah, so I talked with Jimmy and Luis Hernandez. Um, Jimmy is uh, had he had college dreams. Um, he now works at an asphalt company. Uh, Luis, his younger brother, is enrolled at MSU Denver. Um, what I ended up taking away with, from them is really that um, you know they they come from this very same circumstance. I mean, it's the same household, and you can. Um, Jimmy really was never talked about uh, from what he said about what his college journey looks looked like. He really, he didn't fill out FAFSA. He didn't really get the attention that he felt other students who are high achieving uh, received. And what, what I really wanted to, um, you know, highlight from, from Jimmy's story is that, you know, now these, these students are, are, sometimes just passed over and that's how he felt and that's how many students have felt um, in high school and, and don't feel like they're they're given all of their options um, you know Jimmy felt like he wasn't necessarily the uh, type of student that was going to go to a four-year university but he loves working with his hands he loves the trades he wanted to be a welder um, but he just didn't have uh, the the knowledge or or the um, the mentorship and support to get him there, um, 
On the other end, his brother, Luis, um, one of the only reasons, even though he was a higher achieving student overall, one of the only reasons he, he made it to college was because um, MSU Denver had a program that, that reached out and said, hey, like, we'll help you through every single piece of this process and we'll make sure that it's as it's, it's easy as possible. Help you with FAFSA. We'll, we'll connect you with financial resources. Um, we have we have college mentors that can can help you through this. And um, you know, Luis really felt like it, he he received all of the support, but not everyone around him received this report uh, support. And and he looked at his brother, and he felt like. I wish my brother had the same support. And so, you know, it, it, like I said, my takeaway is, is this can, it's sometimes a little bit of luck. It's sometimes a little bit of self-determination, but um, you know, the, the, the ways Hispanic men are served um, really isn't up to what it needs to be from, from the students um, uh, own mouths. Um, and, and Luis really, um, I think, put it very nicely that, that his student or his brother should have received this kind of support. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jason Gonzalez, a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, who covers higher education. Jason, you also spoke with a ton of education officials and experts for your reporting on this. What did you learn on that front? Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that um, people understand. Um, the, the, the folks who are leading initiatives, um, at their colleges, they really understand what's going on here. They, they, um, there has been a shift to try to recruit more Hispanic men or Hispanics generally to, to a four-year university. Um, and, and they realize that, um, there is, you know, a lot of challenges that they come with and, and, but one of the things that I've really seen is, is like, Luis's story that many of these things are um, limited, that we don't have, whether it's through funding or whether it's through um, the, the focus that the school is putting on it or just, you know, a, a variety of, of issues that pop up into, you know, um, bureaucratically uh, that, um, the, these students uh, don't have um, the, all they need, and some students are are not getting anything that they need um, to make it through through college. And and some, you know, feel like uh, when when they're in trouble, they don't have an outlet through the college to help them get through. Um, so it, it, in it's not like um, it's not black and white here. It's not saying that that colleges aren't trying. Um, it's just there. There's so much limits to what they they um, they have available, um, and what in uh, the way that they're they're serving this group as a whole. And I think a lot of students who are um, first generation and who don't always have the the financial means. Well, what are schools doing to close some of these gaps? Schools like MSU Denver, for instance, have uh, specialized programs that, like uh, Luis, was able to take advantage of uh, that provide you know mentorship and really follow the student from the the, the beginning to the end. Um, that there's not a lot of slots available for um, all of those students. Like I said, it's it's limited um, in its its uh, range and uh, how many students it can serve. Um, schools like CSU Pueblo have a, uh, it's called a PAC center, and that's 
a new center that tries to help um, faculty, train faculty in how to support certain groups of students and, and um, the challenges that they're facing and really meet those students on an individual need. Um, that hasn't really been built out all the way yet, and it's ra rather new. Um, CSU, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, they're working on a, um, a plan on how to, to um, serve Hispanic students, Hispanic men especially, and, and look at how all the, the nuances that are there and how to meet students, again, on an individual level, but that's still in some of the, you know, idea phase and trying to get, figure out, you know, all of the things that um, Hispanic students, Hispanic men are, are bringing onto campus and how, how to, you know, um, reach them as best as possible. So the schools are trying um, and, and they're working on, on um, uh, initiatives and, and uh, programs that, that are trying to reach Hispanic men and all students, um, but the, the need is greater than uh, I think what they can provide right now. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to his reporting, which, by the way, is also available to read in Spanish, at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Drought has been in the headlines a lot this year, and climate change threatens to further shrink water supplies in the Colorado River Basin, an urgent issue that water managers, tribal leaders, and other decision makers are discussing at a conference in Las Vegas that wraps up today. But what makes a drought a drought? KUNC's Alex Hager spoke with two scientists who track the numbers that define dryness, and they had some stark warnings about where they're heading. When it's Brad Udall's turn to tell people how bad the drought is, the mood is rarely a good one. That's been the case since 2003 when he first started talking about climate change in the Colorado River Basin. I mostly got a lot of dirty looks. And since that time, I've started calling myself the skunk in the room. That's from a talk he gave at the law school in Boulder earlier this year. Udall is one of the region's foremost experts on water and the climate. And when I spoke with him, his assessment on where things stand is pretty bleak. I mean, you cannot look at these and not be concerned. Um, and, you know, the climate models tell us this is going to get worse. Um, there's every reason to believe it's going to get worse. It's gotten worse since the year 2000. Uh, the spooky thing is it seems to be getting worse at a faster rate. In terms of duration, uh, it, it's, it's not too many years from being probably equal to the worst drought in terms of, a, you know, like a 25-year period. That's Connie Woodhouse, who studies the history of climate at the University of Arizona. By looking at tree rings, she's able to learn about other dry stretches over the course of the centuries. And the thing that makes this one different, the factor that pushes this drought beyond the normal ebb and flow of the climate, it's the heat. That's different than our long droughts that we're seeing in the past. Um, even though some of them were during warmer periods, they were not uh, as warm as the, as the temperatures that we're seeing today. When it comes to tracking drought, Brad Udall highlights four metrics, temperature, but also soil moisture, precipitation, and the amount of water in rivers and creeks. Right now, all of those indicators are heading in the wrong direction. 
and they're connected. I think the thing that leads the way here are these higher temperatures. I mean, that pretty clearly to me is the sort of proximate cause of all of these problems. And of course, those higher temperatures derive from greenhouse gas emissions by humans. So how hot is it? In the 21st century, average temperatures in the upper Colorado River Basin are more than two degrees warmer than the last century's average. And one of the big problems caused by that hot air, it dries out the soil, and that creates a feedback loop. When there's moisture in the soil and the sun beats down on that soil, that solar energy actually goes into evaporating water, which doesn't raise the temperature of the surface of the Earth. But once the soil moisture is gone, that same solar energy then warms the surface of the Earth in a really profound way. Which in turn heats the Earth, which dries out the soil, which heats up the air, and you get where this is going. Another problem? Dry soil is also thirsty. A recent study of soil moisture in the West showed that now is the second driest it's been in the last 1,200 years. When spring comes the next year and that snow goes to melt off, rather than running off into our rivers and creeks, it fills that soil moisture depletion that occurred the previous year. Last year, snowpack in the upper parts of the basin was at 90% of average. But because a whole lot of dry soil stood between the snow and the rivers, we only saw 30% of average runoff. And on the whole, rain and snowfall totals in the region have been steadily dipping for decades. Connie Woodhouse says that all combines to make this drought a special one. And then you add warming. Um, we're seeing things that are outside the range of what we've seen in the past, just because of that warming element. Brad Udall says some factors of human-caused climate change are not reversible, although it's within our technological capability to turn others around. But disagreements over policy and the very facts of climate change are standing in the way. Man, if we could get ordered and, and centered and focused on solving this problem, we could solve it. That I know. But it's like trying to fight the Germans in World War II where half the army says, oh, they're not, they're our friends, they're not our enemy. That won't work with the threat of this size. And if we stay on this course, Udall says river flows in the Colorado River Basin could go down another 10 to 15 percent by the middle of the century. And at the same time, the number of people that rely on it for drinking and irrigation keeps going up. Alex Hager, KUNC. The Colorado River's biggest reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, have both dropped to levels not seen in the decades since they were filled. And that's prompting mandatory conservation by some of the river's biggest users. In 1948, a World War II-era bomber crashed into one of those reservoirs, Lake Mead, which is formed by the Hoover Dam, which straddles the Arizona-Nevada border. After several failed attempts to locate the plane, it was finally discovered in the early 2000s, still remarkably intact. But given rising temperatures and sinking water levels, some experts are asking, will climate change finish it off? Franny Halperin with H2O Radio has that story. The official crash report was that the pilots were flying low to collect a last bit of scientific data before returning to base, and that the instruments on their B-29 aircraft were improperly calibrated. Also, the account said that Lake Mead, smooth as glass on that July morning in 1948, distorted their depth perception 
and sent the plane skipping like a stone across the water. The other side of the story that is told and also was repeated by flight crew is they were hot dogging. They were just, it's fun to fly as low as you can. It just is. That's Susan Edwards, an archaeologist and historian at the Desert Research Institute, or DRI. Whatever the truth, when the B-29 hit Lake Mead, the impact stripped off three of its four engines and took out part of the tail as one of them whipped past. The pilot and the co-pilot were able to wrestle the plane back into the air for about another two to 300 yards, but with only one engine left and it on fire. Luckily, they were able to ditch the plane straight and level and pop the hatches to escape. Four of the five, anyway. A crew member in the back, Frank Rico, had been thrown against the bulkhead and broke his arm. Now, the plane was going down tail first. He was trying to get out, but his parachute got stuck. The captain and the co-pilot realized that he had not popped up out of the back, and they heard him banging on the interior of the plane. And they went back in and were able to pull him free. So they got into rafts and the plane went down about 12 minutes later. The men were rescued, but the B-29 would be lost in a watery catacomb almost 280 feet below the lake's surface. That is until in 2003 when Dave Conlon laid eyes on it. It really literally looked like a spaceship sitting on the bottom of the of the lake and it was clean and shiny and you could see the you know the all the stenciling. Conlon is the chief of the Submerged Resources Center of the National Park service, which manages underwater assets from coral reefs to shipwrecks. The first dive on the plane was, oh my goodness, this is so deep, this is so scary, this is so dark, and then suddenly we saw the aircraft and it was just beautiful. But actually, he wasn't the first to see it. Several people had tried without success, to locate the plane, including the pilot who had hired a salvage diver. And then what happened is is that um, a local diver uh, went out with a, with a side-scan sonar and looked for the plane. Which, without a permit, is against park regulations, but he did find it. He and a, a team of beginning technical divers started diving on the plane. And over the course of a year, they, they set up lights and they, they were filming and they, they removed items. Their plan was to do a documentary, file a salvage claim, and sell the aircraft. Then we said, well, wait a minute, it's International Park, and it's a U.S. military aircraft, and you found it illegally. Following a court battle, the Park Service prevailed as the rightful custodian. And now the challenge is to have the public appreciate the B-29 and its history. So what is the history? Why was the plane flying over Lake Mead? Jeff Wedding, Sue's colleague at DRI, gives the backstory that starts with the rise of Nazi Germany. The powers that be in the military are realizing we may be drawn into a global conflict. A call goes out from the War Department for a new type of bomber, the B-29 Superfortress, as it came to be known. It's pushing the boundaries on aviation design. It's going to be twice the size, carry twice the payload, go twice the distance as anything we've got flying, and it'll do it 100 miles an hour faster. A pair of B-29s, the Enola Gay and the Boxcar, would become famous as the planes that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. But the B-29s sitting at the bottom of Lake Mead had a different mission. It was designed for photo reconnaissance, to take post-mission bomb damage assessment photographs or to take preliminary photos of a target. After the war, many B-29s were mothballed 
called, but the Lake Mead Plain with its observation windows was perfectly suited to do emerging science on the upper atmosphere. So aboard the plane on that July morning in 1948 was an instrument called the Sun Tracker. It was a, a spectrograph that uh, focused on the bandwidths of light. The mission was to measure infrared rays, research that would lead to the creation of heat-seeking missiles. And although the data were lost in the wreck, the plane offers a glimpse into history because it's intact even with the co-pilot's headset still dangling on the stick, along with Frank Rico's parachute after they cut him free. Also, the B-29 is sitting in fresh water that preserves it better than had it crashed in the ocean. Or not. Starting in 2007, quagga mussels, a tiny invasive species that harms ecosystems and damages infrastructure, started appearing in the lake. You still get the sense of the, the B-29, but it is covered with it, and it is weighing on the fabric and the structural members, the sheer weight of the quaggas. Park Service divers like Conlon will monitor how the mussels are affecting the plane, and also what happens as the region gets warmer and drier. So as the lake level drops, the plane becomes easier and easier to access. And so the number of people who have the skill and ability to dive on the plane has increased dramatically. And that epitomizes a common dilemma for the Park Service. We all have a, a mandate and a desire to involve the American people in their national parks. And in the process of doing that, of course, we don't want the thing that we're showing people to be destroyed. One way to protect the B-29 is to grant it National Historic Landmark status. And an application by the Park Service is under review with a decision possibly by summer. Do I wish that it still looked like a spaceship? Absolutely. We are in the forever business. And my job is to leave our parks the way I found them. And if if I do my job well, no one will ever know that I ever did my job. For H2O Radio, I'm Franny Halperin. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll talk with three Native artists who worked on separate murals in Denver's Rhino Arts District for Native American Heritage Month this year. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Mm-hmm.